Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Eric Hatch with Hatch Realty in Fargo, North Dakota. Last year, he closed 516 transactions with a total sales volume of $108 million. His average sales price was $210,000, of which 58% were buyers and 42% were sellers. He has a 27-member team, four buyer agents, four showing partners, three listing agents, two listing assistants, three inside sales agents, one sales manager productivity coach, two transaction coordinators, one marketing director, one photographer, one graphic designer, one event coordinator, one expansion partner, one front desk, one broker, and one team leader. Eric Hatch is the team leader of the Eric Hatch team. He's been an agent for 10 years. In this call, Eric talks about how he went from selling 50 homes to 500 homes in five years, selling zero homes his first year. For the first five years, he was a part-time agent and sold 58 homes in total. In the sixth year, he went full-time and sold 52 homes with one part-time assistant. The next year, he multiplied his production by a factor of four and sold 192 homes. The next year, his team sold 246 homes, while Eric personally sold 151 homes. How to find and hire the right people. Why you want to hire culture and train skill. Description of his 10-hour hiring process. The buyer agent showing partner model. Who does what in compensation. The $300,000 per year buyer agent. His top listing agent listed 125 homes last year. How two socially awkward ISAs converted an extra 280 transactions last year. Why lead conversion is more important than lead generation. Follow-up strategy and script. Why he and his team never ask for a referral, yet get 50% of their business by repeat and referrals from past clients and sphere of influence. Seven past client event themes that result in business. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Eric. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Hey, Eric. It's great to have you here. Eric, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I had a career in ministry worked at a local church. In fact, the church that I was born and raised and baptized in and spent my whole life there. I, I've lived in Fargo, North Dakota since I was born. And so I'm a product of the environment here. And after I graduated from college, the church that raised me hired me to work in youth ministry. So I spent about eight years there 
building and, and creating and empowering and connecting with people. And it was the job that I loved. I didn't think I would ever leave it. And uh, I, it seemed as though I wasn't ever going to leave it. But then the family needs that uh, my wife and I had. It wasn't the best financial way to take care of a family and to get ourselves out of some dumb financial moves I had made uh, personally. And so because of both of those things, I was propelled to go ahead and to move into a new opportunity, and that was with real estate. Uh, so I got into real estate because I was flat broke, but I turned it into still a ministry job. So I'm still doing the same thing I was always doing of empowering people and connecting with people. I just get a, a better way to support my family now. Why did you choose real estate? You, you wanted to make a little extra money. Was there someone you saw that was succeeding in real estate? I had inherited my mom's home. She passed away when I was 21, so the house I grew up in I inherited and lived there for four or five years and, and uh, fell in love with my fiance, my girlfriend, now my wife. Of, uh, her name's Emily. And we both said we don't want to live in my mom's house. And so we were looking for a property uh, for a number of months and working with my good friend, Jason Spies, uh, who was a realtor. And he said to me, Hatch, you're good with people. You should sell real estate. And, and at the time, I was flat broke. And so I said, man, I could, I could earn some sweet cash. It's 2005, 2006. The market's hot, and it's never going to change. So I'm going to jump into the market uh, and, and uh, get my real estate license. So my friend Jason propelled me to it. I went to a mom-and-pop brokerage uh, with no training, no guidance. And I just thought that because I all of a sudden was a realtor, people were going to come and work with me. And I was foolishly wrong and sold no homes my first year. <laughs> so, so that was one of my next questions is whether you had a fast or a slow start. Sounds like you had a pretty slow start, zero homes in the first year. Yeah, I was I was part-time in real estate for my first five years. So 2006, 7, 8, 9, and 10, I was, I was part-time. After my first year, I finally figured out how to do it in terms of growing my expertise and going deeper with relationships. Because if you understand this, Mike, I was still a full-time employee at the church. And I was never going to use the pulpit or the church as a sales platform. I was the last thing I ever wanted to do and the last thing I've done. Uh, and, and so I had to be really intentional on trying to work my sphere from a different angle. So I, I mastered open houses. I mastered connecting with people uh, outside of church, but rather uh, Facebook was a really great catalyst in terms of staying in front of people and informing them on what was happening in my life and then me uh, engaging in their life. So the second year I sold 10 homes the next year, it's continued to grow and crescendo from there, where each year has been a little bit more than the year before. Eric, if I look back at it, if I understand correctly, in the first five years, you were part-time, and in that, that period of time, five years, you sold about 58 homes. Is that correct? That I did, yeah. Uh, again, zero in the first year, and I think I, uh, I sold about 21 in my fifth year as a part-time agent. So it, it grew, and it grew not by aggressive forms, but I, I was figuring out. I spent some time working on a real estate team as a buyer's agent. Then I spent some time working as an independent agent and kind of went back and forth trying to figure out what was the design for me. But I just started to get confident in real estate, and all of a sudden my part-time job was paying me more than my full-time job. And I, I was really seeing a, a, the opportunity for me to grow a business and to build myself as an entrepreneur, but most importantly, to impact people's lives. And so that's why it was an easy transition. The sixth year, you, you jumped up. You went to 52 closings. Was that your first full year? Yeah, it was. 
January, mid-January of 2011, I went full-time, but I was still working in the ministry part-time. I was, I was working 15 to 20 hours a week. I had switched from my home church to now working at a place for a local college campus, was doing a ministry job there. And so in building my real estate career, I, I was dead set on having a big opportunity for my family and, and for my life and knew that building a team was going to be the way in which I would get my life back. From 2006 until probably 2014, I was a 90, 80 to 90 hour a week employee. And that's not always face to face with people, but when you're building, envisioning, and creating, you always have to be one step ahead. And so in 2011, when I was selling real estate, uh, I recognized very early that the best way to do this was to build a team. And so I was mastering my sphere. I didn't buy leads in 2011. I went and stayed in contact and communication with people and tried to come from contribution with everything that I did. And by doing that, uh, I I ended the year with 52 sales and a a part-time college student helping me out with some marketing. That's a, a nice big jump. For your first full year, 52 closings, mainly by yourself while you were doing the ministry. And then it gets even wilder. The next year, 2012, you multiplied your volume by a factor of four. You went up to 192 closings. How did you do that? I've been asked this question a lot, and my answer is always the same. There's a bit of a shoulder shrug. Because the only thing that I've known has been rapid growth. And it's a foreign concept to me, and this isn't ego talking. This is just what I know. It's a foreign concept of slow growth is something that I don't know because I've never experienced it. I've been overwhelmed with abundance in my life in this in this industry. And so part of it is the fact that I have longevity here in the Fargo-Moorhead area. Uh, I've been here my whole life, and from high school on, I've had the opportunity to be in leadership positions and sometimes celebritized. Being a celebrity in Fargo, North Dakota, for people in Fargo means something. Being a celebrity from Fargo anywhere else in the world is just a skid mark on the map and means nothing. But here in this community, my name, my face, and my involvement with the community has always been the first thing I've done. And now real estate is a byproduct of that. And so as we, as we uh, about quadrupled what we did, the opportunity was really, really big there. Because I had been so visible in the community and been really hyper-involved, uh, some business came to me. I mean, that's the dream business, right, is, is to have business come to you. And so historically, since 2012, about 50% of our business has been sphere referral and past clients. It's predictable. We know that half our business is going to be people that already know us. One of the ways that we, we grew in, in a rapid way is we went out and found business. We lined ourselves up with a builder for two years and, and, and had some good kick in the pants. We sold an extra 37 homes in 2012 because of that. But we also invested in some lead platforms, Tiger Leads, Boomtown, Facebook. We dealt with Parade of Homes, Realtor.com, all those things where we picked a little bit from each spot. And so that's how we got ourselves to 192. But with that as well, we had grown our team from just myself and a part-time assistant. 12 months later, there was 11 of us. But I had done, by the end of 2012, I had done 113 of the 192 transactions. So I was I was carrying uh, about 60% of the load. So building the team and, and selling an awful lot, and that's where I really failed, is uh, I wasn't empowering people. I wasn't training them. I wasn't managing them right. I didn't know intimately what made them tick. And instead, it was just all about me. 
And so that led to the demise of my business in 2013, where we had some really great growth. At the time, uh, we were with a local Keller Williams franchise, and I have nothing but respect for that franchise. But in 2013, we continued to grow. If you know where Fargo lays on a map, we are on the Minnesota border, so the very eastern edge of North Dakota, and we're a sister city with Moorhead, Minnesota. So 80% of our business is in North Dakota, 20% is in Minnesota. But in western North Dakota was the very big oil boom of, of things that were happening with fracking out in the Bakken. And so at that time, I had $25 million in commercial listings, and I've never done a commercial deal in my life. But I had $25 million in commercial listings out in, in western North Dakota, five and a half hours away from where I was living, on top of a team that I didn't train right, that I didn't equip right, that I didn't put in the right seats on the bus. And I was also stubborn, egotistical, and it all blew up in my face, Mike. And, and so in April of 2013, I got, I got shown the door at Keller Williams and kicked out and uh, completely fell apart. Wow. So they asked you to leave. And I assume that they didn't ask. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't ask. They said, they said uh, Eric, we uh, love and appreciate you, but you can no longer work here. So what does that mean? Does that mean that all your business remained there under the broker and you had to start from zero? Were you able to pull some of those listings and some of your team members out? What did you do? Because I can see in your statistics that you didn't just crash and burn. The very next year, you actually sold 50 more homes than the prior year. So you must have done something to rebound quickly. So again, 2012, we sold 192 homes. 2013, we were on pace. We believed come that April before I got kicked out to sell between 350 and 400 homes. We finished the year with 246 transactions, but on that uh, dreaded April day, everything fell apart. And I had some team members. I had an expansion market 70 miles north of Fargo in a town called Grand Forks with two agents there. And so they weren't able to come with me as I changed brokerages. I had 48 hours to figure out where I was going and what I was going to do. And so ended up aligning with the brokerage uh, that was owned by the same builder that we were representing. Ended up not being the right fit for us and was a really hard hit uh, to the tune of about $250,000 in mistakes that I made in that nine-month process. But thank goodness Keller Williams is the company that they are because their stance is if you leave the company, whether you get kicked out or choose to leave, it's still your business. You still get paid on those transactions. You still get compensated for your efforts. Your listings go with you. You still get paid out on the work that you had done. And so my team went from 13 people down to three people overnight. Some I chose not to take with. Others chose not to come. And we picked up and moved. And uh, our broken, sorry uh, trio of people, myself, one buyer agent and one admin, started over at a new company. And as you said, it only lasted for nine months there. I assume you built up and then you had to shift again. You had to constantly think on your feet and move quickly. Very much so. Again, I had made mention that I always want to be one step ahead as the leader of the company. So in 2013, the year when I got kicked out, we did 246 transactions, but I was 151 of those transactions. And so again, I was about 60% of the company's volume, and I was carrying a large load. But the great thing is that I was committed to hiring right and training right and not making this about me, but rather making it about we. And so finding that opportunity for people on our team to come in and excel and for them to build big lives for themselves instead of them building a big world for me. 
change the philosophy of how I hire. I change the philosophy of how I lead. Because at the core of this, I'm still a youth leader. I'm still a youth minister. I'm still a youth director. Where my job, my goal was to invest in the people that are around me to give them great opportunity and to show them what's possible. And that's why I failed, is I was inauthentic to myself trying to make it about me. Because I, I had this idea that being in a for-profit business meant that I had to change my ethics and my attitude and all of a sudden become a, a greedy, self-serving person. And I, I was for quite some time, and that's exactly why I failed. If we fast forward to today, you closed 500 transactions last year. How many of those transactions were closed by you? Great question. Um, this is one of my favorite answers. So our team closed 516 transactions in, in 2015. I had made mention that in 2013, I did 151. I did 149 in 2014. And in 2015, I did 36. So our, our team went in 2014, we sold 411 homes. 2015, we sold 516. But myself personally, I sold 103 less. So our team had a 200-plus transaction swing by the production of the agents within my world, and I did that with only adding two more agents to the sales staff. How were you able to pull yourself back out of the production mode that you had been such an a integral part of the company and had really centered around your production, and your own personal production is the most profitable production? How were sure you able to pull yourself it. back? Great question. The only way that this business is going to function long-term is if it's not about me. We're working hard to have everything that we do, whether it be the name of our team, which is the Eric Hatch team, or the name of our brokerage, which is Hatch Realty, we want those to be a brand and not a person. We want those to be synonymous with success, with passion, with service, uh, with character, and we don't want it to be synonymous with me as an individual. Now, the namesake still bears leverage here in this town. But if I pick up and move to Denver, Colorado, nobody knows who I am from Adam. But we still want that name to be synonymous, and we want Hatch to be an adjective instead of a proper noun. And so when it came time for me to move myself out of production, it was because I had trained right, because I had hired right, and put people in a position where I believed with all my heart that they were better than me. Because I'm really good at a couple of things, Mike, and I'm pretty terrible at everything else. I know how to sell homes, but I knew that I was not great at servicing the clients because I was spread too thin. And my clients deserve more than that. And so because of that belief, I forced myself to find people who are greater talent than me, to train them right, and then to empower them because they want a big life and I want to be a part of that getting it for them. And so that's how we were able to do it. I found one listing agent that was a superstar, and so we shared the load, and then I slowly diminished my load in, uh, of transactions. That wasn't until my daughter was born. My daughter, Finley, was born in October of 2014, and once she was born, I said, no more, I'm done. And so the only transactions that I did in 2015 were people in my very close personal sphere that I wanted to work with, that I chose to work with, or some investors that I've had long-term relationships with. And traditionally, I had showing partners showing them the homes anyways, and I was just writing the contracts. Your daughter, Finley, is that your first child? It is, yeah. She's uh, the light of my life, 16 months old right now, and my wife is pregnant with their second. So everything is uh, changing. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I was looking for a turning point, and it appears to me that that's the turning point. October 2014, your daughter arrives on the scene. You decide you need to spend more time with the family, and 
that's what got you to to make the transition into a brand rather than being the main driver of the company. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that that was the turning point when I stepped out of production, and it was an intentional. We knew that as soon as my wife was pregnant, we were always wondering when that time was going to be, and my intention was to to be a better father than I was a businessman, and it still is today. And so because of those, I was convinced that I couldn't be in production anymore and lead a team and be a father and a great husband and a devout man of God. Something had to give, and what had to give was production. And so I had to find people and train them and empower them, and I had to get the heck out of my own way. And truth be told is that's when our business catapulted again going from 2014 to 2015 with a 200-home swing with only adding a couple of salespeople is because these uh, these people that are in my world now are the best salespeople in the country. I, I get to work with the, the best agents on earth, and it happens here in Fargo. If I understand correctly, you're still on that high trajectory. You're anticipating closing 700 transactions in this upcoming year? Yeah. The way in which we figure out what our goal is for the year is not the company coming in and sets a percent goal based on what we think we're going to do, but instead we look at the individual production of each person, how hungry they are, and we just add together all of their individual goals. And so when we took all of our salespeople and added together their individual goals, we came up with the number number 722 for transactions. That equates to about $150 million in volume. And so in Fargo, North Dakota, with an average sales price of about 210, that's 722 transactions roughly. We knew that those individual goals, when they're met by each agent, will have everything that we want as a company. And so our trajectory right now, I'll give you an example here. Uh, We have uh, an agent who started with us back in May. His name is Kyle. And to start as an agent in our company, you have to start as a showing partner. You can start as an ISA, an inside sales agent, but we want you to stay in that role. But if you start as a showing partner, you can use it as a graduation piece into a buyer agent role or a listing agent role. And so we spent nine months with Kyle learning the business intimately before he ever became a buyer agent, and we we cut him loose in the middle of December. Come February, this guy, with less than two months of actual experience as a buyer's agent, pended 12 transactions in the month of February. And February in, in North Dakota, things don't move very fast, and yet we found ourselves a superstar among superstars who wants a really big life in a really big world. But the way in which he's succeeding is because he's surrounded by leverage with transaction coordinators and inside sales agents and great admin staff that are setting him up for great success of being the producer. And yet he's here celebrating our admin and our our staff every day because that's why he's as successful as he is. And so we have a really nice balance now, and we're confident that getting to 700 transactions will happen this year because of the leverage, because of the teamwork, and because of the environment that we've created here. On the concept of your trajectory, you're going to be up to 700 and some transactions this year. Do you have a goal down the line that you're trying to hit, say, 1,000 closings or 2,000 closings, or is it just happening because it's happening? Are you you shooting for a goal? Absolutely, we are. We're very strategic with our plan. So nationwide, according to the Real Trends report, the Aerocatch team, we rank 67th with the 2014 production. We closed 411 transactions in 2014, and so Real Trends recognized us as the number 67 team in the country for our transactions. 
We believe that the 2015 stats, once those are all calculated, will have us in the top 50. So we know that nationwide we're on our way up. So we're watching very closely, and we believe we'll be in the top 20 here within the next three years. Now, locally, Hatch Realty as a brokerage, and we don't have any independent agents. It's just our team as our, at our brokerage. No independent agents are in our family here. It's all people who are just grinding on the team. Here locally, we currently have a market share of about 6.5%. And so our strategy is to be number one in the market, and we think by 2020, we'll be there. Realistically, we're limited by the number of homes that are sold. There was about 4,000 homes sold last year in, in Fargo. So that's 8,000 transactions because you have a buy and a sell on each side. And so each year we're looking to take a 2 to 4% market share. And so we know that that's going to drop some numbers for other people. But within the next four years, that should catapult us to the top of our market. So we have benchmarks. Our, our benchmark right now is to be the number three brokerage by the time this year finishes. By the time 2017 is over, our next benchmark is to be the number two brokerage. And then by 2020, to be the number one brokerage based on the competition that we have in town. And that would put you around a 20% market share? Yeah, a 20% market share, and we imagine there's going to be about 9,000 transactions at that time. And so a 20% market share, that is around 1,800 transactions. Wow, that is really awesome. You brought up a couple of interesting points. You talked about your team and how you've learned how to develop team and find people. Let's dive into that for a minute. How do you okay. find a really great person for your team? Our best luck has been people coming from our own spheres people that we already know. I'll say this, and this is the most important backbone of this, is that we hire culture, we train skill. And so what I mean by that is we need somebody to come in with the right attitude, with the right energy, with the right positivity, with the right work ethic, with the right intentionality. I need somebody who I love hanging out with and that I trust inherently in my world. I'm going to spend more time with that person than I am with my own spouse. And so I'm very cautious about who I let into this world. And then in the hiring process, we don't say this is the job you're applying for. Instead, we spend literally seven to ten hours learning about them and what their passions are, what makes them happiest. And so once we've done that and figured out what makes them happy, if we have a role for them in our world that matches that, we bring them on. The last thing I want to do is to hire somebody into a role that they're not happy with, that they're not satisfied with, or that doesn't play into their natural skills and abilities because they're going to be frustrated. We're going to be frustrated as a company, and it's going to end poorly. I've done it before, uh, and I've done it too much, and so now we're intentional on listening really well and then building a world around that person that allows them to succeed. So it all starts with hiring. Every last bit of success and failure, it all starts with hiring. So if you don't get that foundation piece right, no matter what you do thereafter, you may have shoddy construction if that foundation piece isn't right, even if you have the greatest builders in the world. You said you spend seven to ten hours with this potential employee learning about them. What are you doing in the seven to ten hours? Great question. The greatest thing that we're doing with these people, it starts like this. They first are, are filling out an application where we get a cover letter, a resume, and then they're filling out a couple of things that is the disk profile and the values profile. And so we use those to see where their natural gifts and abilities lie and fall to use that as a filtering process. If we like what we see, the next step is traditionally a 30-minute phone interview with one of our team members. 
that 30-minute phone interview is to vet them to find out if indeed we want to continue with the conversation. But it's not a typical interview question. And that typical interview question is, tell us at a time when you were managed really well. Tell us what your greatest skills are. Instead, we would ask somebody, what are you passionate about? What would your friends say about you? What do you love to do when you're not working? And what we're looking for is attitude. What we're looking for is energy. What we're looking for is not somebody who's trying to sell themselves because to be on a team means that you have to have some humility and you have to be willing to not have your name or face on the sign. And so when we take all that and we piece it together, if things are looking right, we then get references from people. And then we take those references. We always want three references. And then we go three deep with them. So, it, Mike, if you give me a reference of, uh, of somebody that you worked with previously, we'll call that person. We'll ask them 10 to 20 minutes of, uh, of questions. And then we'll ask them for a referral. Who's somebody else that would know Mike uh, that can give us some insight as to how he is to be with us at work? So then we call that second reference. And that second reference, we ask the same questions. And then we again ask for a reference. Because the people that you're putting on your reference sheet, Mike, are going to be the ones that say, we love Mike. And we want to go deeper than that to see what the next person's saying and the next person's saying. So if we're able to get three deep with all three people, we've had a total of nine interviews for diving in and uh, checking references. Once all that is green-lighted, then if we think this person still is a candidate, they sit down for a three-hour interview with myself and their uh, direct supervisor for whichever department that they're applying for. That is twofold. Well, probably threefold. One is we're validating their disk, making sure that what they said is actually in alignment with who they are. Number two is we're learning their life story, going very deep to see patterns in their life where we can see, because traditionally, I don't hire anyone in our world that has real estate experience. I will hire somebody with real estate experience, but traditionally, we don't, because we want to see if this person is unproven or emerging talent. I don't want somebody who's proven talent because it's really difficult to rebuild somebody to fit into our team and our culture. And so once we've gone with their life story and we found clues that say that this person is unproven or emerging talent, we then ask them some interview questions that would be the typical interview questions that you'd hear in, in most other companies. After that three-hour period, if we're still on board with them, there's another step, and that is that the person will traditionally join us for a social interaction with the team. We invite them to a happy hour, so we do a lot of happy hours around here, but we invite them to a happy hour to rub elbows and to meet the people that they're going to work with because I want the team to validate the decision that we've made to say that this person seems great. If one person said, don't hire this person, we wouldn't because it's, it's our team. It's not my team. It's our team, and so I want everybody to have a say in that. And so that's the traditional hiring process for somebody to get the opportunity to work here. Whether it's, whether it's a runner, a front desk person, a salesperson, a transaction coordinator, it doesn't matter. They all go through the same nine-hour process. You mentioned you're looking for unproven or emerging talent. What kind of things are you looking for in their past? Are you looking for examples when they've been successful or overcome obstacles? What kind of things are you digging for? There's always clues that will emerge when I get somebody's life story, I want to know what kind of kid they were in high school. And if they went to college, what kind of college success did they have? Uh, were they involved or were they uh, just a book nerd? Or did they even study much or did they party? And none of those will tell me what kind of production person they'll be or what kind of admin person they'll be. But if you find somebody that seems apathetic about where they were at, 
that traditionally will tell you that that kind of energy will spill over. What I look for people is folks that have overcome obstacles. The best salesman on my team in terms of production was a bar manager for 15 years. Working 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., five days a week, hardly had any time for his family, but was chummy as I'll get up, but was making probably $40,000 a year and never had time for his family because of how much he was invested in the bar. And so he came, and last year alone, he sold 125 transactions. And that that happened in a two-year period. He's been with me less than three years. And so what you look for are patterns of success. And so when I interviewed Mark, I saw that he was passionate. I saw that he was caring. I saw that everything that he answered was energetic and excited. He had an energy to him that was unfathomable. And he was just looking for a place to shine and had only known the bar industry because it's what he got himself caught up in. But he's quick to also talk about uh, how he struggled with alcoholism in his life. And some people may shy away from that, but when we're in a three-hour interview, you learn an awful lot about people. And so he talked about his struggle with the bottle and how he overcame that and how he battles that every day. And what I learned by just him explaining that story was his attitude on life, his resilience that he has, and his ability to overcome obstacles when, when something doesn't go right. And so the the time spent just asking regular interview questions will never show those kind of insightful ideas that you can learn from a really in-depth interview. You also mentioned a quick guide at the beginning was the DISC test. What are you looking for on the DISC? We always want to put somebody in a natural role that fits best for them. Very, very abruptly, you want an admin who leads with their S or their C, You want a buyer agent that leads with their I. You want a listing agent that leads with their D but also has an accompanying higher I. And for the ISA, you want somebody that leads with their C, has a higher D, and has not a very high I. I think the DISC is about 25% of the actual hiring process. If somebody, We have a couple of agents on our team that are S's and C's, but kill it because they have the right attitude. But we use, we use the disc traditionally as a validator and also a filter to weed some people out. Just out of curiosity, Eric, what are you on the disc test? I am a 99D, a 99I, my S is about a 40 or 50, and my C is 11. I have no detail. I have a lot of authority, and I'm as schmoozy and chummy as it comes. So you hire for culture and then train for skill, and you've shown that. You are not only willing to bring in people that don't have real estate experience, it sounds like you prefer it. I sure do prefer it, yeah. If if you come to me and say that you have 10 years of real estate experience, that's like coming to me and saying, do you want to buy a piece of lettuce? And I don't eat salad, so no thanks. So you're building your culture by the people you bring in. It's not that you're Absolutely. bringing people in and then trying to mold them to your culture. It's happening before they come in the door. Correct. It's it's already ingrained in them. You can't teach culture. You can teach skills, but you can't teach culture. Somebody either has the right attitude and the right energy and the right disposition on life, or they don't. And it's an unapologetic piece to our business and to our philosophy on how to hire. In fact, last night we did a career night, and we're looking for three positions right now for our team, and we have over 300 applicants for three positions. Because what's happening now is we've created an energy even in the community where people know and recognize what we're doing and that it's unique and it's special and it's what they want to be a part of. 
And so through that, at our career night, we had uh, about 60 people here last night curious about employment with this company. And we use that as a time to, to talk with them and to listen and to get a feel for their energy. Now, I'm not totally into feng shui and all these energies and crystals and that sort of stuff. That's not my thing. I'm just talking about somebody's attitude and, and, and the way in which they approach life. I need people to be optimistic and not pessimistic. I need people to be givers and not takers. I need people to light up a room instead of darken a room when they walk in. And if that's the case, you have a pretty good chance of working here. Now, a minute ago, you said that you like to find your potential hires, your, your potential team members from within your own social network. So is that where these 300 applications came from? And if so, how do you get the word out that you're, you're going to be hiring some people? So of the 300 applicants, I'd say that probably 25 of them, I'll say 10% at most, are actually coming from our sphere. The next, say, 5% are past clients who just watch us and, and follow us and want to be a part of our world. And then that leaves the other 85% have come. Uh, we're working with a website called WiseHire, W-I-Z-E-H-I-R-E, and they have vetted in there a disk profile and a values profile as well as submission of mission of resumes, and then it assigns them a score. And so it's all within one thing, and they take it and they blast out to Monster and Indeed and LinkedIn and all these other places. And so those folks who are coming from Indeed or wherever it may be have a much harder chance of gaining entry into employment here. And the reason why is because we don't know who they are. But the people who are the 10% who are coming from our own sphere, they automatically get the first round free, meaning that somebody in our culture has has already said they are a culture fit, they would do well here. And so that kind of validation and referral goes a very long ways in my world. Well, Eric, if you have, say, 25, let's see, 50, so maybe 40 people that are coming out of Sphere and past clients for three positions, why did you open it up to Wise Hire and bring in the, the next 250 people that you would have to call through why not just keep it to those original 40 since that seems to be where you're pulling from? Yeah, great question. And the answer is pretty simple. I need to build a bench at this time, not only to hire the best of the best that emerged today, but I, if you remember how I explained it, what we're looking for is people who are the right culture fit. And then from there, we want to learn about what their passions are. The needs we have of today are specific for these three jobs. But I promise you, in the next three months, we need to make more hires. And so if we're spending time through this process to see who these people are and what makes them tick, just because the job that we have today isn't right for them, the one we have for tomorrow, we maybe can say, oh, we met Joe Blow at our, our career night, or they applied and we, we vetted them for the interview and they weren't right for the front desk position, but they're going to be really right for our marketing team. And so we're building a bench where we have resources and availability to dive deep so that if our growth happens like we're predicting it to, we're ready to go. And then in addition, if we are to lose anyone, uh, unfortunately, and we haven't lost anybody from our team since we imploded three years ago, but if we're to lose someone, we have folks in the wings ready to go chomping at the bit and we've already vetted them. You mentioned on the production side, on the agent side, that when you bring people in, they initially have to come in as a showing agent or an ISA. If they come in as an ISA, you want them to stay on that side, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But on the showing agent side, what is the difference between a showing agent and a buying agent? I want you to think of it as a doctor-nurse relationship. 
When you go to the hospital, the nurse is traditionally the one that builds the relationship and does the things that maybe aren't as specified because the doctor comes in with better education, better experience, and so their ability to look at an x-ray and diagnose a problem is heightened traditionally from what the nurse can do. Can the nurse do what the doctor does? Sure, but I would rather trust the doctor because they have more experience and more education. So with that, we use that same approach with our showing partners and our buyer agents. They're partnered together, so each buyer agent has their own showing partner that works directly with them. With that partnership, that showing partner is is assisting in, in showings and going on inspections and building the relationship and the rapport with that individual client the one who's writing the contracts, negotiating, and handling everything from contract to close because that's when the deal and the money is really made, is negotiation, inspection removals, appraisal fighting, that sort of thing. That's the specialization that we don't ever want to throw a new person to. And let me use this as an example. If you're going to be a nail technician, meaning you're doing manicures and pedicures, you have to do 600 hours of continuing education both on the job, at a, at a salon, and in the classroom. 600 hours. If you're going to be a realtor in North Dakota or Minnesota, you need to go to 45 or 90 hours of continuing education, pass a couple of tests, and then they trust you with the largest financial investment in somebody's life. The bar for entry to be a realtor is crazy low, and I will not let anybody practice on my clients. And so they start as a showing partner where they're not trusted with the negotiation and the really hard, heavy stuff, which can have a deal fall apart. Instead, we want them to build rapport, to learn the business, and we pay them a salary to train because the way in which real estate is set up, I'm concerned, is broken. It keeps some people out, which I'm thankful for, but some great folks miss out on the opportunity. Very few people like me can work part-time into a full-time job. Usually, they'll do it part-time, and it doesn't work, and so they get out. And so, if you think about it, if you, in your very first day of being a realtor as an independent agent, get a buyer, traditionally, the average buyer looks at a home for 10 weeks, and then it sits in escrow for six weeks. So, if you're lucky enough to get a buyer on day one of you becoming a realtor, you get paid your first paycheck in four months. And that eliminates so many people. And I'm not interested in eliminating people so long as they're vetted right. And so that's why we pay these showing partners a salary to come in, to train, to learn. And I promise you they're going to have well over 600 hours of education before they ever get the chance to negotiate. So they're on a salary first. Is there a certain period of time they need to stay in that position? You said 600 Uh, hours? uh, We don't put a timestamp on it because if I tell somebody you're going to be in this position for nine months, if that nine months comes and they want to to move up but the opportunity isn't there for them, I'm going to be held to that. And so we don't tell them a time frame and we don't ever guarantee graduation from being a showing partner. Now, they're getting compensated with a salary and they're getting compensated with a percent for referrals that they're bringing in, people from their own sphere, people from open houses, and they have minimum standards that they have to hit in our world in order to continue to play on our team. But if they graduate, there's one of three ways. The first is they're so stinking good, we can't keep them in that role any longer. The second way is that if we have one of our team members leave, they pick up and move, we we fire them, whatever it may be. If one of those people in production leaves, we need to move somebody up and graduate them so that they're ready to go. The final piece 
is if our business grows, and again, if we're growing our market share by 2 to 4% per year, we know that there's going to be opportunity for us to build people up and to have them grow. And so there's one of three ways in which people can graduate, and we don't ever guarantee it, but it creates accountability, it creates competition, and it builds a bench for us. So it's a win-win all around. I'm sure a lot of folks listening are going to be curious about how you've structured this compensation. You said there's salary plus a percentage of referrals for sphere of influence and openness. Could you give us some more details on that? I sure can. What we've set up for our showing partners is a livable wage. That livable wage is $32,760 a year as their base pay. That's fifteen seventy five an hour, and we said that's that's a wage that traditionally somebody in an admin job is making, or that's a, a wage that somebody starting off in most careers would make, or maybe even less. But we want to come from generosity and support people. Then from there, a business that they're bringing in, they can get anywhere from five to fifteen percent of a commission split. So if it's somebody from their own sphere, they're going to get 15% of the transaction. If it's somebody that they picked up at an open house, I paid them, the company paid them to work that open house. And so they're getting a 5% referral if it's a buy or a 10% referral if it's a listing. You said you you team them up with a a buyer agent. They have a little more experience, and I assume they're, they're pretty productive. Could you describe for us what your compensation program is for buyer agents? Absolutely. Our buyer agents are the only people within our company currently that are 100% commission. And so there are there are two tiers that they can graduate from. If they're from zero to $2 million a year in, in volume, they're on a 40-60 split with the company. If they sell between 2 and $4 million, any, any uh, sales within that category, they're on a 47.5 to 52.5% split. And then when they have reached the $4 million production mark in volume for the year, they're then at a 55-45 split. But the ISA is also compensated by the buyer agent. And so if the ISA sets up the appointment that the buyer agent closes, they're giving 5% of that transaction and that commission to the uh, the ISA. And then the buyer agent is paying for 49% of the salary of the showing partner. Wow, that was a lot going on in there, so let me just make yeah, sure I have that right. So your buyer agent is receiving between 40 and 55% on a graduated scale based on their production. They're right. also going to pick up the cost of the ISA by paying a 5% commission or 5% of the commission to them. Is that 5% of the gross or 5% of their side? So if they're taking a 55% split, if they're at over $4 million, they're then taking a 50% split if the ISA is the one that set the appointment. So... Okay, so it's five. So traditionally, they're all gross. The yeah, gross five percent of the gross, side. which which actually ends up being about ten percent of of their commission. Sure, and then you said forty nine percent of boy, what did I miss there? Forty nine percent. Forty nine percent of the sh- the showing partner showing salary partner. is paid, and so we bill the buyer agents every month. And the reason why it's a fifty one forty nine split is because the company still needs to maintain power in that relationship because it's it's our hire and not the hire of the buyer agent. They're a part of the process and they're a part of the leading and the managing, but we need to keep the power in the hands of the company with that. So that's why the company's 51 and the buyer agent's 49. And there are going to be people listening to us going, geez, those splits are terrible and you're charging them all these fees. But <laughs> in lightness, how much production is your typical buyer agent doing? 
the standard to be on our team, if you have a showing partner, is you have to sell 50 homes in a year. Otherwise, you can't play with us. So if you don't sell 50 homes a year or if you're not doing a consistent four deals a month, something is absolutely broken in the system. And so we look and investigate. You're put on probation. If you don't meet that, you're released from the team. And we've only had to release one person since the inception of this. And so as we go through all this, we have the minimum producer that will do 50 transactions. My top buyer agent this year will do probably between 85 and 90 transactions this year. And so if you're wondering what that calculates and translates to is my poorest my poorest buyer agent will make $150,000 net. My best paid buyer agent will make about $300,000 net. So all these splits work out just fine if you look at the net. You know, poor people care about the, the percentage and that they watch the growth. Those who are, are doing really well and experiencing some great wealth, these people experience wealth because they get, if you're getting 50% of a transaction, you're traditionally getting a net of 50%. If you understand uh, how businesses run, man, I would kill for a 50% net on anything. <laughs> and it just doesn't it, it just doesn't work that way when you run a business because there's expenses associated. And so they think they're giving up half the transaction, but traditionally we're giving 80% of the business, between 70 and 80% of the business to our agents. That comes from the team because we've created such a machine here. So they have the responsibility to bring in a minimum of 14 deals in a year. That's just over one a month. But they have to bring in a minimum of 14 deals a month, and if they don't do that, they can't play here anymore. But we're going to bring them the rest, and we're going to teach them how, we're going to train them how, we're even going to pay them to train, and then we're going to give them all the leverage in the world so that they're specialized instead of being generalists. If you're a buyer agent or a listing agent, that's all you're doing is connecting with people and negotiating. You're not doing much paperwork. The lead generation you're doing is to your sphere. You don't have to deal with leads. You only deal with appointments. And it's a huge game changer, and we work as specialists. And as we do that, people get to do what they love, and so that's creating wealth in their world. And that's where they can move faster. That's where they can sell more. That's where they have more cash in their pockets. That's where they have bigger smiles on their faces, and that's where they love the culture that they're in, and they don't leave it. You're creating an environment where they get leads and leverage, and it's working very well just by the production They get, they get appointments, appointments and leverage. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I, the ISAs have already vetted the leads, and, and so you're not having to call people that don't want to talk to you. The ISAs do that. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Yes, and we're going to come back to the ISA piece in a little bit. I want to round out the production side on the, the agent side. You have the listing agents. Could you explain the compensation program or the structure over there? You bet. So our listing agents, I'm switching my senior listing agent, and he has been on a base pay plus a percent commission. That's what all our other listing agents are on, but he's graduated, and now we're affording him the opportunity. If he chooses, and he just chose yesterday, actually, to switch to just percent and not receiving a base pay. So we obviously are paying a co-broken situation, but if we procure a listing that our company is making 3%, he'll get a 21% split. 
If the company takes 3.5%, you'll get a 24% split. And if the company takes a 4% split, we traditionally try to charge 7% paying the 3% co-broke. But if he's able to charge the full 7%, pay the 3% co-broke and get 4% for the company, he receives 27% of that GCI and of that commission. So on a $200,000 transaction, if he's able to do a 4% commission, that's an 8,000 gross. And then he makes 27% of that. So he's making 2160 on that transaction. Now, again, if it's a $200,000 deal and he gets it at 3% for for the company, that's a $6,000 commission. And now he's making 21% of that. So he's making 1260. He's making $800 less per transaction on based on an average of 200,000 if he doesn't get it at 4%. And so do you think that he's incentivized to get deals at a higher commission split for the company? Sure. So we raise his commission if he can raise the commission because it's a win-win. The company makes more and he makes more. And so we keep him incentivized. And so that's his commission split. And then our other two listing agents are on a base pay of $2,500 a month. So that's $30,000 a year. They receive 10% of the commission at 3%, 12.5% commission at 3.5%. And at a 4% commission for the company, they receive 15%. And so that actually doubles their pay. But our listing agents are all six-figure employees. Everybody who's with us for a full 12 months will make six figures in a listing agent position, minimum. That's pretty interesting. And, and again, people listening will be thinking, my, my goodness, those are small percentages, but you've shown that the net is higher. Are the listing agents receiving the same situation as the buyer agents where – They're just going out on appointments that have already been vetted, and their objective is to sign up the the seller, and they get a focus on that as opposed to prospecting, or are they also doing prospecting? No, uh, everybody on our team has to prospect. They have a minimum standard of of 14 transactions that they have to bring in, and that's from their own Uh. sphere and open houses. So everybody has that standard that they have to bring in. By the way, the listing agents also get an extra 10% when it comes from their sphere. Because I'm paying the ISA, and by I, I mean the company is paying the ISA, and the ISAs get 10% on listings. And so that is not coming out of the pocket of our listing agents. So the company pays for that. And in addition, Mark, my top sales agent who sold 125 homes last year, he made a, a great living. And what's nice about listings is that we're in a seller's market more than we are in a buyer's market. And so his job traditionally is. The appointment is set by the ISA. Everything is pre-qualified. His appointment should be 60 minutes or less with the folks. And then he doesn't take the pictures. He doesn't do any of the marketing. In fact, each of our listing agents has a full-time assistant that works with them also that the company pays for. And so there, again, if it's a doctor-nurse relationship, the nurses are our listing assistants. These are unlicensed. One is licensed and one isn't. But they are relationship builders and detail people. The only job that our listing agents have to do after procuring the business is to negotiate and to get price reductions. In a seller's market, homes don't sit for very long, and they don't have to spend that much time for homes that fall in our average price range. It's a higher-priced home. It takes a little more work, of course, and they're going to get compensated because of it. But for the average price point of 210000 bucks, if you put a sign in the yard in this community, that home's going to be sold in 48 hours traditionally with multiple offers. 
And so their workload per transaction is pretty small. So if you look at a dollar per hour basis, if I have a listing agent that makes $200,000 a year with me, which is a pretty fair salary in any kind of world, that's $100 an hour that they're doing. And so I have people in my world that make $100 an hour. And, and if that's what you're concerned with is is making the $100 an hour as opposed to wanting a higher percentage, welcome to heaven, man, because we, we're going to rock and roll with you. You told us about buyer agent production, what they're typically closing in a year, your low to high. How about your listing agents? How many transactions are they closing in a year? So Mark, my top listing agent, did 125 last year. Rob, who was in his first year, only had about two months of momentum coming in, did 81 last year. But in the first two months uh, of this year, he's already pended and closed, I think, 30 deals. And so our listing agents have a standard of 72, so that is six deals a month that they have to close. And so the buyer agents, their standard is 50, or you don't play here, and our listing agents, their standard is 72, or they don't play here. We just hired on and graduated up from the showing partner position, Natalie, who is our third listing agent, and she's been going at it now for a week. So so very new for her. Her production this year will be similar to Rob's, about 80 deals. Rob will do about 110 this year, I believe, and Mark should do between 120 and 140 transactions. By the way, all of our listing appointments now are in-office listing appointments. We're not going to houses. People are coming to us. In-office listing appointments, how are you getting everybody to come into the office? Don't you have to look at the house? (laughs) Does a doctor have to cut you open to diagnose your problem? Or can they look at the, can they look at the x-rays? Can they look at the way in which you're walking? Can they listen to your symptoms? Can they get all the descriptions? And 99% of the time, analyze it properly. Certainly when they get there and, and cut you open, they're going to be able to analyze and say, boy, this was different than what I expected. And when it's different than what they expected, you roll with the punches and you re-diagnose. Now, for for real estate, it's the exact same thing. Just because it's always been done where you go to a house to see it, Truth be told is that we as realtors have access to every bit of information on the house. I think that 60 to 70% of everything is location, location, location. Depending on where you live determines the value of your home. After that, if we say that's 60%, I'd say the next 25% are things that you can find anywhere online. That's your square footage, your lot size, your number of bedrooms, your number of bathrooms. Those are all things that can't and won't change traditionally. So 85% of that foundation, if you're picturing a pyramid here, 85% are things that we have no need to see the house for whatsoever. The last 15% is traditionally based on condition. Now, you can get a really good feel by asking the right questions. And, of course, our photographer is validating what people have said once they get to the home. But we don't need to go and see the house traditionally because most of the homes in this community have other homes that have been built just like it in that neighborhood, and we know what it needs to sell for. Somebody who's selling their home needs to be sold on the team that's working with them and what they're going to do because we are a a marketing and servicing company that happens to sell real estate. And that's any other real estate company whatsoever. And if somebody says they have a distinct advantage beyond that, it's not true. Our job are to be experts in the market. And to be experts in the market, that means that we need to be marketing really well, we need to be servicing really well, and we need to know inventory really well. Beyond that are all bells and whistles. And we'll... We'll not waste our time with those anymore. Listening to how you described your your production side of your team, you are setting up each production agent with an assistant uh, to help them. 
on our buyer side, it's a, a showing partner, and on the listing side, it's a, a listing assistant. But basically, you're using the model of a production agent with one direct assistant. You, you basically created a little mini partnership, a bunch of little mini partnerships within your company to hit these high production levels. What gave you the idea to do that? I think it came out of desire to not have a company with a bunch of mediocre people. And I'm not saying that, that that's what other people's companies are if they're in a different model. But for us, I'd rather help Brandon, our top-selling buyer agent, I'd rather help Brandon have a huge life than figure out how to get him to 40 homes. And then once he sells 40 homes, he's going to go independent and he's going to leave the team. We had to continue to build a company that had a world that's big enough for everybody else's world to live within it. And so we have to figure out how are we bringing leverage to these people so that we have an ISA, a transactions coordinator, a showing partner, or a listing assistant that are all a part of the experience and everybody can work as specialists. Again, that's when people will stay happiest. And when you're happiest, you're not going to pick up and leave. The last thing that I want is for one of my agents to say that I didn't have any other growth opportunities at Hatch Realty and I needed to pick up and go elsewhere because I ran out of chances. If somebody wants a world that's big, I need to make my world even bigger and figure out how to get them leverage and support and to get them the assistance that they need so that they can have a bigger world. Truth be told is I think that if we had this conversation in a couple of years, we'd be talking about people on my team that are doing 150 to 200 transactions because they have a team within a team. And what that looks like right now, I don't know. But I want to continue to build my world that's big enough for the other people that are in my world. And it actually plays out. So if I just took your production last year at 516 and we divide by the eight active agents, you're at 64 closings per year on average. The average agent in the nation is closing maybe four transactions a year. So you're closing 15 times as many transactions as average. You have created something that's way above an average agent by shoring them up with all this leverage. It's pretty exciting what you've done there. Another part of the piece, though, is these ISAs. What does ISA stand for, and what are they doing? ISA stands for Inside Sales Agent, and truth be told is I'm not sure it's the right title for them. If I were to rename them today, it would be Lead Managers and Sales Managers. So twofold, any lead that comes into the company, uh, whether it be a phone call, an internet lead, uh, something from Commission Zinc or Zillow or Realtor.com, anybody who calls off of a sign, anybody who pops into the office, they are originally vetted by our inside sales agents. Their job is to convert that from a lead into an appointment to nurture that relationship. And oftentimes we're finding that especially internet leads are taking between 30 and 50 touches until that person converts. And so they are caring for that lead until it turns into an appointment. Once it turns into an appointment, that's when this ISA switches from being in that transaction from being the person caring for the lead to now they are managing the buyer agent or the listing agent until that person becomes a client. So they're setting the appointment, they're, they're setting the stage, and they're handing off the baton so that the next salesperson is set up for success. If that person doesn't call, so say, say the lead's handed off from uh, the ISA to Brandon, one of our buyer's agents. If Brandon doesn't call the person within our designated time, he automatically 
gets questioned by the ISA and oftentimes skipped in the rotation and doesn't receive his next lead because we have standards in our business that everybody agrees to play with. It's the best method of operation, mode of operation for that person to get maximum production. And so if Brandon chooses not to call the person within 24 hours of the appointment being set and introduce himself, if Brandon fails to call the person the day of the appointment and remind them of the appointment, Brandon gets skipped on the next one. And that's all managed. The whole client experience from customer to client is managed by our ISAs. And so last year's production, we had two ISAs. They were a part of 54% of our transactions or 280 of our transactions, which places them, as far as I know of metrics that I've studied, as the top two ISAs in the country. We've now hired our third ISA and a fourth one is working on getting licensed right now because we believe in the system so much that we're not only using it to grow our world, but we want to help teach and coach other people how to grow their worlds outside of our little world here. The ISAs are not in the same proportion as the production agents, so how do you know which lead goes to which agent? Traditionally, it's a rotation, but we also have some agents that are hungrier than others, and so... We use that as the original filter, but then if we're talking with somebody and if somebody uh, on the disk profile is a really heavy D, we're not going to give them to Emily on our team, for example, because Emily leads with her I and follows by her S. She has very low D. And so even though she's a master at mirroring and matching, we don't want her to get run over. And so that'll, that D will traditionally go with somebody else, and then Emily gets the next one into the rotation. And so we're intentional on first following the rotation and honoring that. But if there is a better fit, we will shift that around to to make it right for the client. So you're looking to match the disk profile of the prospect with the agent? Not, Not necessarily. But if the person is an overwhelming D or if the person is an investor that's looking for a specific property, if we have somebody who specializes more in that, we want to line them up with them. So I wouldn't take Natalie's my new listing agent. I wouldn't take and give her the million-dollar listing because she has no idea what it takes to work with somebody like that because she's only listed one home in the last week, right? And so I have to give that million-dollar listing to Mark, my top listing agent, because he's experienced homes in that price range and because he knows what it takes to, to negotiate and navigate through clients like that and especially deals. And so there are times that we will shift things around, but you have to earn your stripes in this business too. And if you're starting out, you don't get the big ones and and the easy ones necessarily right away. How many calls are the ISAs making per day? Their standard, their minimum that they have to make by each ISA is 225 calls a day each. Traditionally, they're making three to 400. How many people are they getting a hold of when they call 225? 20 to 30. Yeah, it's about a 10% actual get in touch with. And then they're tracking that and taking notes. What type of system are they using to track those conversations and those contacts? Our CRM that we are absolutely in love with is Commissions, Inc. We use it as a lead generation platform, too, with some pay-per-click advertising. But their back-end system, we found for us, has been the best fit. Commissions, Inc. is thorough and robust enough. And most CRMs are if you master it, but we've mastered Commissions, Inc., which means that we can do the old Ronco food dehydrator process where his infomercial says, you put this meat in, you set it, and you forget it. And that's the intention with all of our leads is is that we need to put people into the system and then we need to set 
set them on their plan and then we forget about it because it'll tell us what we need to do and we don't have to be smart enough to try to remember how to balance the about 14,000 people on our database. You mentioned that the, the ISAs are making 225 calls the minimum per day. What other minimum standards do they have? Do they need to set an appointment a day? What yeah, other the, metrics are you using? Our ISAs need to set a minimum of two appointments a day, but their actual goal that they have for themselves are three appointments a day. And we've been very cautious on this because when we first started with this, they were just looking to set appointments and they weren't setting qualified appointments. And if somebody with a pulse who had champagne wishes and caviar dreams and nutty bar budget, they would still set those appointments. And instead, they're now trying to set up the agents for success by making sure that these people are coming to the consult and they're already pre-approved, they're already set up on some drip campaigns, and they're ready to go. But the standard that they have is that they need to set two appointments a day per ISA, and then they need to make a minimum of 225 phone calls. If those goals get done, if those lead goals get done, we know our leg goals will follow soon thereafter. Would you mind describing the compensation for the ISA? Our ISAs receive a $2,000 a month base pay, so that $2,000 a month is a $24,000 a year salary. And then on top of that, they are making 5% for buys that they set. 7% if, if the buyer that closes is over $250,000, so either 5 or 7% on buys. They're making 10% on sales on all of our listings. And then if any lead comes from their own sphere, meaning that the company hasn't paid for it, they're getting compensated 15% of the transaction. So 5 to 15%. The ISAs are licensed? Yes. You don't have to be licensed in any state to be an ISA if you're just going to be talking about the company. But the second that you talk about a house specifically, no matter what state you're in, I believe you have to be licensed. And so there's a lot of people in the country who don't have their ISAs licensed, but we think that, especially because of the target that's on our backs and uh, the growth that we're having, we're going to do everything right and make sure that they're licensed. When you go out to hire an ISA, what are you looking for in the person? What, what type of disc? You've already <laughs> described the culture issue. Is there a disc metric that you're looking for? Yeah, I want them to be socially awkward. Uh, and that doesn't always show up. That, that, that doesn't always show up on on a disc profile. But if they lead with their eye, if they're naturally social by nature, I don't want them in the ISA role traditionally, because their job is to be on the phone and not face to face. And eyes will traditionally, there are certainly exceptions, but eyes will traditionally thrive more in face to face relationships. And these guys, uh, the the three that I have now and the fourth that I just hired, would probably be described as Star Wars nerds. If you're looking for your next ISA, I'd say wait until the next Star Wars movie comes out and see who's in line. And we joke in our office about it all the time that all of our ISAs, and they'll be the first to say it, are socially awkward, that, that they're weird, that they're, they're the odd ducks of the group. Truth be told is they're, they're just being self-deprecating, but they're not going to be the ones that shine in a social setting. They're going to be a wallflower traditionally in a social setting because they don't like large crowds at least the ones that we've hired and found great success with. So on a DISC profile, they're going to lead hopefully with their C or their D, meaning that they have to have thick skin but also detail because they're managers and they're handling all the details of this client experience and from customer experience until they become clients. We want their I to be under 50. The S traditionally is higher if the C is higher, not in all cases, but we want them to lead with their C or their D for sure, and both of those need to be higher.
and they are super productive. You said 280 transactions from two, so 140 transactions apiece. That is some, some major production. Yeah, my lead ISA had, he had 167, and my other ISA had 113. And the reason why is this is a grenade business. The work that you do traditionally in the ISA world doesn't pay off for three to six months. If you're really making 30 to 50 contacts with an internet lead in order to actually get that appointment to happen, you can't come into the job today and think you're going to set an appointment tomorrow. I want to say this clearly because it's an important thing, I think, for people to hear. This is a lead follow-up business more than it is a lead generation business. Most of us have enough leads, and we've created a world for ourselves that's big enough so that we have all the leads in the system that we would need from our sphere, from things that we've paid for, and from natural business that just comes our way. You have to be really careful to protect those leads and those marketing dollars and that work that you've done. And that's what my ISAs do is they, they protect the marketing dollars that we've spent. They protect the relationships that we have. And they take care of this company, making sure that we're not having to go and spend X amount of dollars a month on our marketing in order to bring in new business. Instead, they're going to milk every turnip until it's bled every last drop. The ISAs, they're probably earning a pretty good living as well, aren't they? Yeah, my ISAs are all six-figure incomes as well, yep. In your first year, in your first 12 months, I don't expect an ISA to make six figures. I expect them to make sixty to 80000 And the reason why is the grenade example that I just used is you're not going to see maximum results in a minimum amount of time. It takes a while to build these relationships, but the longer you do the job. I have uh, my sales manager on my team, his name is Josh, was originally an ISA for the first year. After we turned that off, his second year, he still procured and closed about 30 transactions because he had already built the relationship with people. And so it just happens naturally that over time, those people will come in. And what that does is it builds people up and they have to grind when they start as an ISA. They have to make the tough calls, which is more circle prospecting and farming. And instead of the people that raise their hand from a radio lead, for example, and already know that they want to work with us. So they have, to, they have to sharpen their teeth before we let them fully dive in. So their first year, uh, they'll make between 60 and 80, but after that, it's a six-figure gig. You mentioned a sales manager. Is the sales manager working with and managing the entire operation or just the production side being the buyer agent, the showing partner, the listing agent? Who are they managing? They're managing the buyer agents and the showing partners and also overseeing all of our training. Uh, they oversee they the ISAs? Over they don't. Uh, I have a lead ISA that oversees the ISAs, and I have a lead listing agent that oversees the listing department. And so I don't have a lead buyer agent because they're spending so much time in production. So instead, because of the showing partner model that we've uh, adopted, we need to have somebody who's uh, a dedicated manager of these teams within teams. We've talked a lot about the team. Let's go ahead and just uh, round it out so people get a big picture. You've got 27 people running around. You've already told us what the production side does, so just go ahead and fill out anybody we haven't talked about. So of the 27, we are going to be, if you look across the country, probably the heaviest admin team that you'll find. Again, we're committed to service and we're committed to specialization with what we do, and so people would have a different experience in our team than they maybe would elsewhere. 
So if I were to break this down, we have a broker that oversees our whole operation. Even though we're a team, our team is a part of our brokerage. It's the same family. So oversees all the stuff to keep people out of my hair. I have my broker's license, but I choose to avoid all those problems at all costs. We have two transaction coordinators, one that represents the buy side, one that represents the sell side. And then one of those transaction coordinators also does our finance managing, so payroll, uh, earnest money, handling the details of the profit and loss statement. So her plate is really full. We have an expansion partner. There's a community in Minnesota about 45 minutes away called Detroit Lakes, surrounded by a whole lot of lakes and resorts and that sort of thing. And so we just started with an expansion partner there. That person works with buyers and sellers while they still get all the hub admin and ISA support here 45 minutes away. We have uh, our own marketing team, which is very different than how some other people choose to operate. We don't like to outsource things. We like to keep them here for ourselves personally. And so I have three people on my marketing team. I have uh, a marketing director who's also an expert in videography. I have a photographer and a graphic designer. And this team is going to grow in leaps and bounds here in the next 6 to 12 months. We think that where the marketing department goes, that's where we go also, trying to create more mind share, which will lead to more market share. We have a front desk person. We have an event coordinator. We do a number of client events. And then myself, who's the rainmaker. And my job is to be active in the community, to be involved, uh, to train, to coach, and to uh, build relationships as often as I can. And since we bounced around a little bit, for anybody taking notes at this point, I'll just name off the others real fast. We've already discussed you've got four buyer agents, four showing partners, three listing agents, three ISA, well, it was two ISAs, and now you're building up to three and four, and then one sales manager and two listing assistants on that sales side. Thank you for walking us through the, the team side. I mentioned the culture. You went into the, uh, great detail there. What I'd like to do now is talk about what you're doing as far as lead generation. You've mentioned that 50% of your business is coming from past clients and sphere of influence. Let's dive into that for a minute. How many people are in your database of past clients and sphere of influence? We have around 14,000 people that are our past clients, people that we're currently trying to pursue, and then folks who are our sphere of influence. So if anybody joins our team, agent or admin, uh, we want their wedding list, we want their Christmas list, and we put that into our CRM so that they can set it and forget it, be reminded when they need to contact their sphere. And then we also want to protect their money because every time we're figuring out who gets paid what on a transaction, we look to see if that person's in our system. And if they're in our system, if you've put them in there, then you have the right to some compensation in that transaction, being the, if you're the procuring cause. The 14,000, does that include internet leads? It does. It does. But every day we're adding probably 30 to 40 people to our database, and we're also deleting 30 to 40 people from our database. So the, the ISAs, as they're grinding each day, are finding people to add and then they're also taking people away who have said, we're not interested in focusing with you anymore. Are you able to pull out what number of people are in your past client group and what number are, say, in your sphere of influence group out of that 14,000? I can tell you our past clients in the last uh, four years is about 1,600 sets of, of families. So that's, uh, boy, that's about 12% or so. And then each of us has put in uh, a database of anywhere from two to 500 people. So 
The rest are, are people that we're working on building businesses and relationships with. But we think that there's a great opportunity here to figure out how to engage the people who I couldn't refer to them as sphere of influence if they're just a lead that's come through the system. We think that there might be a missing piece between being a customer, somebody who's just curious out there, and a client. The way I've heard it defined is it's a membership experience. And what that looks like, I'm studying right now. I don't have enough information to, to fully say what it is, but that membership experience is a way to try to engage some of those customers to have them name us as their company of choice when they are ready to make their move instead of us chasing them. We've built that rapport and that relationship, and they've already trusted us uh, with a membership piece. Are you asking every member of your team, including the admin, to bring their lists, uh, their wedding list and Christmas list, their sphere of influence list, and add it? Absolutely. It's required. Okay. So if you have almost 30 people now at at least 200, that's like 6,000 people on sphere right there. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, that's pretty impressive. Do the admin people get some type of compensation when a closing happens out of their sphere? So admin are not allowed to receive, uh, unless they're licensed, they're not allowed to receive a percent of the transaction. You cannot give commission based on the transaction to somebody that's not licensed. Are you tracking your entire database, including your past clients in Sphere in Commissions, Inc.? Yeah, we've been working with both Commissions, Inc. and Top Producer. We've really fallen in love with Commissions, Inc., and so we're on right now uh, the month of March and April of 2016. We're working on transitioning out of Top Producer and fully into just Commissions, Inc. You also mentioned that you're removing 30 to 40 people per day. Do you remove your past clients and sphere of influence from the list, and if so, why? No, they stay on the list. They stay on the list, and one of the things that we're intentional on doing, too, is we like to adopt clients if possible. So let's say uh, we are the sellers uh, of 123 Main Street that were the, the listing agent for that. Obviously, we followed the sellers of that property to the next one and have maintained their contact information. But we also know the name and the address of the people that just purchased 123 Main Street. So the Smiths just bought 123 Main Street, and there are times in which we add them to our database too. And so these orphans, we, th we don't think that the agent that sold them the property is oftentimes going to stay in touch like they should, so we will. And when we do client events, it's really funny to see uh, all these people come out of the woodwork, and we'll get literally dozens of people that we've never met before, but we happen to be the listing agent on the property that they bought, and they remembered us, and they came to us. So you're picking up the orphans and the, the co-op clients after the transaction. You're staying in touch with them because your assumption is the other agent won't, which is typical. If the other agent is, will you step back? By request, that we sure will. We sure Very will. Uh, if, if, if the agent contacts us or if the seller contacts us and says, please remove me, absolutely, we'll, we'll honor that all day, every day. We're not interested in, in taking business from other people, but we don't like the idea that people are forgotten about. So on your past clients and sphere of influence, again, 50% of your business, could you describe to us let's say, your annual marketing plan, what happens in the course of a year to stay in touch with those people so they're giving you those referrals and repeats? It's imperative that, that I make this clarification that anybody who is in our sphere, we do not ask for business from. If it's our lead generation time and each person that works in our business, 8.30 to 9.15 every day is script and role play and 9.15 to 10.45 is lead generation, 10.45 to 11 is our daily huddle. That's our rhythm every day. 
so their day doesn't start until 11.01. But what we need to be cognizant of here is as we're doing this to set people up, we want them to contact their sphere, contact their sphere regularly, but to come from contribution and to not ask for business. And so a typical call would be, hey, Mike, it's Eric with Hatch Realty, long time no talk. How's your house or how's life? What's going on with your family? Uh, We talk about Ford an awful lot, family, occupation, recreation, dreams. And so we say that's what you talk about on every one of those phone calls is tell me about work, tell me about family, uh, tell me about what you're doing for fun, and clue me in on what your plans are here in the future. And you just come from curiosity and you come from contribution. Now, we as a company are doing between six and ten client events each year. For example, last month we did something called date night, where we offered a date night package to each of our clients. That means a piping hot pizza, a piping hot large pizza, a bottle of wine or a a big jug of beer, and a Redbox movie coupon. And we had 528 families come in a three-hour period to receive these date night packages. It was chaotic. It was awesome. And what happens is when we're calling and lead generating, we're simply saying, tell me about Ford, family, occupation, recreation, dreams. And then, by the way, we're doing this client event. Why don't you come see us? And we'll give you stuff. And so that's our lead generation for our sphere. But we're intentional on teaching everybody on our team how to use social media wisely to remind people of what they do, but to never ask for a referral or to ask for business. Instead, you celebrate and you come from contribution. So did you know that interest rates are at an all-time low? It's crazy how cheap you can get for, get a house right now. I just had clients who uh, got into a house for $150,000, and they were able to keep their payment at under $800. So you share that as a, as a social media poster. Instead, you say, uh, I'm so excited for, for Jim and John and Jane Smith who just purchased a, a home. Here's a picture of them. And that's the only thing that you're doing, but you're never asking for business. The ISAs ask for business all day, every day. But our listing agents and our buyer agents are there to build relationships. And they're there to just come from contribution with people. And we think that when we give, we will get. And it's working. And it's working in droves. And so that's what our lead generation looks like. That's how we get 25% of our, of our deals every year to come from our sphere and another 15% from referrals and another 10% from past clients. It's that same metric almost every year, 25, 15, 10. And as we do that, we come from contribution. We don't ask for business. We'll ask our current clients for business. We'll ask them for referrals because that's a gauge of if we're doing well because we can say in a transaction – If I'm not doing well, I don't deserve a referral, but I'm going to ask you every time I see you, who do you know that you've been talking to about real estate that I can also talk to? And if I'm not doing well, don't give me a referral. But if I am, that will allow me to continue my business and move forward. And so that's the only time our agents will ask for a referral. Otherwise, it's always just coming from relationships. And it's worked for us and it's worked really well. Eric, you you mentioned you have six to ten client events per year. You mentioned one, the date night package, which I had not heard before, and I thought I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, could I, you I tell copied us some it from somebody events? else, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could, yeah, could I'm you not, not that clever. Good? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have uh, our, our uh, Thanksgiving pie giveaway. Uh, we give away, uh, this last year, we gave away over 500 pies in a day. That's always fun to do on the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, We have a local uh, comedy troupe. They're an improv comedy troupe called Linebenders, and so we'll rent out a theater and host our clients to a family night. 
This June, we're doing an event called Hatchstock, like Woodstock, but instead we put our name on everything. So this is Hatchstock, <laughs> and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a party with live music, games. We're paying for food for the night for people, and then uh, drinks they have to purchase on their own. So we'll have a, a bar there, but we're expecting over a thousand clients and friends to come to that event. We'll take people to a minor league hockey game or baseball game. We volunteer in the community monthly and invite our clients to oftentimes take part in that with us. We run an annual charity golf scramble in July to benefit a charity that I built when I uh, was working at the church. And so we engage a lot of our clients with that. Uh, Those are a few of our client events that are our staples. And we're trying new things all the time. Photos with Santa, um, Easter egg hunts are some things that we've considered. We do barbecues, uh, just a lot of ways in which to try to get face-to-face with our clients. And it's working. And I like that you're taking a, a real easy approach with it. As you said, you're building relationships rather than pushing for referrals or immediate business. And by doing that, by building the the feel good with your brand, it is turning into business. You know, Zig Ziglar says that you can have everything you want in life if you help others get what they want. And I'm betting my life on that, both with how I lead my team, I make it about them and not about me, and the way in which we're treating our clients, that we're trying to enhance the client experience and, and to build a relationship. And if we give them a life that's great and we can throw some free things and throw some parties and just help celebrate them all the time, we think that's going to pay us back in droves. Are you doing anything else with your past clients and sphere of influence? What I mean by that, do you have direct mail that goes out to them or some type of monthly email that goes out? Those are are some things that we have not yet refined like we want to. Uh, we believe that in the next six to nine months, we're we're going to be transitioning one of our team members to a client care manager. And that person's there to take care of all of our clients from closing and beyond, touching them regularly, figuratively, not literally, but staying in contact with them, coming from contribution and saying, who do you need right now in your life that we can introduce you to? Is it a painter? Is it an HVAC person? And with that will come newsletters and regular email blasts. We are not currently subscribing to anything besides viral marketing, V-Y-R-A-L which allows us to, to do some uh, video blasts to people in our sphere, and it's simply giving them some tips, some advice on real estate. Uh, I do have my own radio show, though, and that engages a number of people who are uh, within that database. A couple of the other things that you're doing to do lead generation are Internet leads. You've mentioned Commissions, Inc. I also understand you're doing Zillow. Could you just quickly describe what you're doing with Internet lead generation? You bet. I want to be very clear on this because people ask me uh, about Internet uh, lead generation all the time, and they say, which platform is best? And the answer is the platform that you use and that you master. And then they'll say, well, which lead source is best? And and, and it's not a lead generation business. It's a lead follow-up business. And so my best example is this. is In in 2014, we were using Tiger Leads as, as a regular lead generation platform. And we had mediocre success in 2012 and 2013 with Tiger Leads, but I had heard that Commission Zinc was the place that we needed to be. It was the, the, the company that we had to work with no matter what. We would be foolish not to work with Commission Zinc. And so in March of 2014, we switched from Tiger Leads to Commission Zinc. And when I studied my numbers at year end, here's what I found, is I found that of the of the number of deals that we closed, we closed 21 Tiger leads and three Commission Zinc leads. 
And it was such an aha moment for me that, first of all, it's all the same crap. Tiger Leeds, Boomtown, Conversion, <laughs> Commissions, Inc., it's all the same crap. But what matters is the long-term nurture, the number of touches, and the systems that you have for those leads that are already in the system. It was such an aha moment to me because the Tiger leads weren't new leads. They were old leads that we worked well, and the Commission Zinc lead were new leads that we had not yet worked well because they hadn't been in the system long enough. So in 2015, the company had a gross of over $300,000 in GCI for Commission Zinc. We had a 10-to-1 return on investment gross based on what Commission Zinc brought into our world. Now, I don't know anybody else in the country that gets a 10-to-1 ROI in a thing like Commissions, Inc., but that, what that translates to is essentially, essentially, we did about 45 deals from Commissions, Inc., and so they were 8% of our transactions, and that's all because it's about the lead follow-up and not about the lead generation, but, but that's one of the ways that we've mastered Internet leads. Now, on the flip side of that, we've had really great luck with Zillow. Zillow is 6% of our business. And so 6% of our business is, uh, boy, they, we are about 30 Zillow transactions for the year. But when we get a lead from Zillow, that's somebody who is ready to see a house. That traditionally, and in fact, we have about an 8.5% conversion rate with Zillow, which is nice and high, and we want to keep it that way. But if it's a commissions inc. lead, we're a 2 to 4% conversion rate. And the reason why it's so different is it's a long-term play and somebody is that sitting at work and looking at houses when they're not supposed to be or they're bored at a family gathering looking at houses and we sucker them in and get them to sign up on the website. And Zillow, there are people that are more active in the market already? Correct. It's somebody who says, I want to see this house. Please show me this house. And so Zillow is a much faster turnaround in, in terms of, of lead sources. It's a much faster turnaround. The lead quality is much higher, but you have timing is everything because if you can't respond within five minutes to that lead, it's basically dead as far as we're concerned, which is, again, why we beef up our ISA platform, and I don't prescribe to allowing agents to receive leads because agents should be with clients. ISA should be with leads. Those are two very different skill sets, and it's one of the reasons why so many people struggle in this business. On the Internet leads, do you have a general idea of what you're getting for, say, cost per lead or cost per sale? Uh, I don't. My ISAs could answer that, but uh, I I leave that in their uh, their caboodles. You mentioned that follow-up is the key on these Internet leads. How are you successful in following up with Internet leads? Is it the speed that you get back with them? Is it the frequency that you get back with them? And if so, what type of schedule do you put them on? Everybody's different. We don't have unique campaigns for each individual, but we do categorize our individuals depending on what they're, what they're telling us. There's a couple of pieces here. The first is you need to respond and you need to respond quickly. The second is you need to shut up and listen. Because here's what happens with most calls, and it's people treat it as a sales call, but it's not a sales call. It's always a service call. And so a service call means that you need to come from curiosity and learn about that person as opposed to try to sell them that house that they're in. It's the same approach with open houses. It's the same approach with expireds or FISBOs, and it certainly is the same approach with Internet listings is that somebody's there and we oftentimes put on our sales hat when we need to shut up and and I tell my team this all the time is that we need to shut up, we need to ask questions and we need to come from curiosity. We need to build the relationship and then they'll bring up real estate. 
And so as we do this, if it's an internet lead, the call is, if I just saw you sign up on the website, I would give you a call and say, hey, Mike, I know this maybe is a little creepy, but this is Eric with Hatch Realty. I saw that you just signed up on our website, viewallfargohomes.com. I'm just curious uh, what makes you look at some houses today. Instead of saying, what house do you want to see? When do you, when should we set up the appointment? And then I'll have, a, I'll ask you questions about your family, your occupation, your recreations, and your dreams. I'll ask you forward. And we'll build a relationship and we'll build a rapport. And then you're going to be so chummy with me that you're all of a sudden going to say, well, when can I set up an appointment to see a house? And it doesn't always work that way, but I, I promise you, if you come from curiosity and if you ask questions instead of make statements, you will have people eating out of the palm of your hand much more so than your current method. Kirk, are you profitable? <laughs> uh, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, we're intentional. I want uh, there, There's a couple of things that I'm pretty proud of. The first is this, that we give back 20% of our profits to the leadership and the admin that are on our team. The company is left to profit after we share the love. So profit share is given out quarterly, and last year alone we gave out over $100,000 in profit share, which is really exciting. And the reason why those numbers are low, if you, if you do the math and you say, well, 20% profit share, and he gave out just over $100,000, that means that we profited 500000 We profited much more than that, but the, the business, uh, we invested and bought uh, a new office building to the tune of uh, $2.5 million dollars. And so we had some money to put down for that and some money for fit-up and some fixtures uh, to make that right. Obviously, we didn't pay $2.5 million for it. The bank paid $2.5 million for it, and we're paying a portion of that. And then we also had some other financial things that we made as investments. We bought some vehicles for the company. We made sure that we were taking care of the waves uh, to, to put money in savings. But after all that said and done, and after the company makes charitable donations, and by the way, in the last two years, we've, uh, we've made $240,000 in charitable donations because we want to invest in our community the way that it is, we're still giving back a, a whole lot in profit share. And when all that's said and done, after running a business, after charity, after profit share, the company is still profiting about 25%. Well, Eric, I understand that, that you're starting up, a, or you've already started up a coaching program. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, we're so excited. We think there's, there's three pieces to our growth right now. One is to become the experts and the masters here in, in the Fargo-Moorhead area. So that means going deeper before we go wider. Second, and that naturally happens from the marketing efforts that we do and the reputation that we build, is that there are expansion opportunities, and so we're looking into surrounding communities to, to see if there's expansion. We have one expansion market right now and plan on opening up a couple more each year. But the final piece is coaching. Obviously, if you're listening to this call and you're here still, it means that, that something has maybe tickled your fancy and you said that this is of interest. And so we think that we specialize in coaching in a couple of different ways. One is, is rainmaker to rainmaker coaching. Coaching that would be myself helping other people uh, on how to build a business that I think is longstanding. We use a phrase called compassionate capitalism, and that's something that we're convinced is the best way to create an environment and a culture that people stay in, that people want to be a part of, and that you can have everything if you help enough other people. So from hiring to training to equipping to building systems to hiring, to firing, and everything in between, that's where I think I can really specialize. Because, again, I'm really great at a couple of things, and I'm pretty, pretty mediocre at everything else. 
the second uh, offering that we have with our coaching platform, and it's cleverly called Hatch Coaching, is that we recognize that what my ISA team is doing is highly unique, highly specialized, and on top of that, a game changer in anybody's business. So whether you have an ISA or not, we think that the lead conversion, the systems, and the curiosity that we're doing here can catapult somebody's business. So whether you have an ISA or not, we have some coaching platforms built around lead conversion, systems, training, and scripts that will change your world. And so that's that's what we're building now. We have about a dozen clients in, in North America, both in Canada and the United States, and we're looking to expand on this quite exponentially. If somebody were interested in finding out more about Hatch Coaching, where would they go? I would advise you to go to our website. It's livefargomorehead.com. Again, livefargomorehead.com. We're currently building out our Hatch Coaching website, if that tells you how new it is. But I've been coaching now for about a year uh, and, of course, coaching my own team here for years and years and with great success. Uh, And so as we're doing this and we're just picking up things word of mouth, this is maybe a great word of mouth opportunity, and I sure appreciate your time, Mike. We're going to find ourselves hopefully with ample opportunities, and with that will come a finished website. But we're we're just a a word of mouth company right now, and that, that that finished website is in the works, but it's not priority number one for us because we don't want to all of a sudden have a windfall of 200 clients that we can't service well. We know that once we put it out there, uh, based on the trajectory and the success that we've had, that we will have people lined up out the door. And, and so right now, it's a word-of-mouth piece, and, and this conversation with you is one of those, uh, one of those pieces. Eric, what you drives you? I'm a youth director. I'm a youth minister. I'm a youth leader. And from that means that I have a a drive to be impactful. I love changing an environment. When I worked with youth at the church, they were naive enough and dumb enough to believe me when I would tell them that you can go and change the world. And then I watched them literally go and do just that. I watched them impact the worlds that they were a part of, both with me as a part of it, and then when they went uh, beyond to college and now uh, as professionals and starting families. And I'm watching the way in which they live as people of character, and it impresses me to no end. So for me, I got to be a connection piece with that, and I got to have a little small smidge in their world, reminding them of what was important, keeping the main thing the main thing, And now, as I'm in the business world, I get to do just that as well. I intimately know what the people in my world want, meaning our team members. I know how much money they want to make. I know their family needs. I know their health concerns. I know the debt that they have in their life. I know what keeps them up at night and wakes them up in the morning. And when I know that intimately, I can help build a world for them that will allow them to reach their goals. And so for me, I am hungry to be impactful. That's the word that drives me more than anything else is impact, is how can I positively impact the world today? And so for me, I want to use voice to change the world. And right now that world is real estate, but that world is also in coaching. And I realize that if I keep this all to myself, these gifts that God has given me, and if I keep this excitement for myself, it's only as good as as I can go. But if I can impact and inspire other people to go and do the same, then there are waves and ripples throughout this world. And it's not credit to me. It's all glory to God. Uh, But I love being the extension cord to connect the power to the source. Eric, why have you been so successful? I I struggle with that word successful because I think there's a lot of people who uh, have a lot of sales or have a lot of money and they don't have a lot of wealth in their life. There are times when I have been 
rich and poor at the same time. I think that as of today, I find myself successful. And that success means that I have people in my life that I value and they value me and we're better together than we are uh, standing independently. And so the reason why I can say with confidence that, that success is a part of my life now is because it's not about me anymore. It's about we with everything that we do. Eric, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting into business, what would you tell them to do first? The advice I'd give anybody starting out is to figure out how to come from contribution, to figure out how to invest in other people's worlds and lives, and to to offer your assistance as opposed to asking for somebody else's business. It's a very slight language change, and yet we all know the used car salesmen, and we all know the uh, the people in, in our world who are financial planners or insurance salespeople, and right when they get into the business, it's always the call of like, hey, buddy, you want to go out for coffee? And my skin always crawled at that, and and good for them for grinding and starting their business, but the, the ask was always to say, let me sell you a product. And I found inherent success in never asking for business, but instead coming from saying, how can I help you? How can I invest in your life? How can I be an impact person for you? And sure enough, it's helped me grow a a large, successful business here, and we're just getting started, Mike. Eric, do you think the top agent interviews like this one with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I've taken great great pieces of information and value pieces because it's it's solidified who I want to be and then it also exposes some weaknesses in my in my world that I know I need to work on. Well, Eric, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? If I make an impact here in Fargo, North Dakota, that's all well and good, but I'd be remiss if I didn't share with you a movement that I'm trying to create with a buddy out of Portland, Oregon. His name is Nick Shivers, and he and I together have partnered to create a movement called Sell a Home, Save a Child, and that's sellahomesaveachild.org. It's a pay-it-forward movement that we want to use to empower realtors, realtors like yourself to go in to make a difference. So instead of giving your client a closing gift of a gift card to Home Depot or uh, a pizza and beer, instead it's a pay-it-forward gift to a company called Forward Edge International, which is rescuing kids out of garbage dumps in the sex trade industry in places like Nicaragua, Haiti, Kenya, and Mexico. And it's saving lives of kids every day. And we all live in abundance. We we live in the greatest country in the world with the greatest opportunities in the world. And Nick and I are convinced that this is not for us to keep, but it's for us to give. And so we've started Sell a Home, Save a Child to empower other agents to join forces with us to give back. Uh, so it's a membership program. There's monthly different levels that you can sign up as as a member. And then every time you close on a home with a client, you can say, instead of giving you a closing gift or in addition to this closing gift, we're paying forward some money to make a real difference in the world. So again, sellahomesaveachild.org if you feel so compelled to check it out and hopefully to sign up to be a member with Nick and myself. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for your time, brother. Well, Eric, you give back, and you've given us amazing insight into your fast-growing operation. You went from 50 to 500 homes in five years. You showed us how to build many teams inside your mega team. You talked about hiring for culture and training for skill. 
and your focus on lead conversion over lead generation. You showed us how to sell 150 homes personally one year, then pull back and let team members take over so you could focus on your newborn daughter. You are ambitious, driven, and industrious. I look forward to seeing how big you can take this. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to two partners who sold 382 homes last year worth $79 million with the expansion team model. Find out who they are on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.